Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, what's up, guys? It's a beautiful day today and I've just realized, obviously, we're doing this charity event thing, which is basically who can run the most... Uh, miles or kilometers next month and we're doing that for charity me taz nichols john mcguigan steve goodall so we're kind of in the pre-event kind of like training phase at the moment and i've just realized that taz nichols is beating me on this week for uh, total kilometers ran so as soon as i'm done recording this i'm going to go out and run and make sure that taz is taz is gonna have to work hard to keep up So basically, before we get started, I I do want to take a moment to let you all know about a really cool new course that Michael Shikashio has started. Michael's been on the podcast before. He's an incredible speaker on dog aggression, and he's just started a new course for professionals that want to learn how to work with aggressive dogs. So you can find out more about that at aggressivedog.thinkific.com. So that's aggressivedog.thinc. See what the fuck am I talking about? It's, it's let me say that again. It's aggressive dog. T H I N K I F I C dot com. All right, there we go. I managed to actually spell it this time. Today I'm talking to Carrie Ann. Carrie runs Dogs Forever Dog Training, and she's a founder of Canine Hoopers World and the host of the Canine Hoopers World podcast. So you can guess today we're going to be talking about Canine Hoopers, which is really cool little sport that I've only just discovered recently myself. It's really cool. Uh, Carrie's doing it the right way. She's got a great little culture going on in her little group. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let's get into it. Hey, Carrie, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Hot? Yeah, I'm right. It's, it's far too hot. I'm being a about the weather. Are you doing your classes and all that kind of stuff at the moment? No, no. Everything has been cancelled this week because I was terrified of dogs melting. So I took the executive decision to uh, not do anything this week because it was too hot for hoopers, which is sad. Yeah, that sounds like a t-shirt or something. <laughs> <laughs> too hot for hoopers. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of people have had that problem at the moment. You know, a lot of people canceling classes and I've canceled a few sessions and like dog walkers just doing check-ins and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's hard, isn't it, when it's hot. But actually that kind of ties in because you are obviously doing a lot of this hoopers at home stuff which I guess is a nice way of kind of giving the dog something to do um, whilst not going outside, right? Or I assume so. Can you you do any kind of hoopers work inside? Um, So depending on your flooring, um, if you've got like rugs or carpet or um, I'm very spoiled and I actually have rubber matting down in my garage. So my garage is like perfect for training. Um, so last winter, I basically spent the whole winter with the tiny dog just practicing stuff in the garage. But you can practice stuff indoors as long as it's on a non-slip surface. You can be, like, doing some exercises, practicing turns, building hoop value, practicing targets. There's loads of things you can do with it indoors or in the garden if it's nice and shady. So, Okay. Yeah, that's um yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess we should probably start off by explaining what Hoopers is because <laughs> I think that it's it's uh new to a lot of people, isn't it? A lot of people will have never heard of Hoopers. Yeah, so I first heard about Hoopers actually about three years ago, but it's been a thing um in America for at least ten years. And I believe the Netherlands for about six or seven. Okay. So it's not new as in it's a brand new concept, but it's kind of new to a lot of countries. A lot of places haven't heard of hoopers until fairly recently, really. Yeah. For for people that aren't familiar with it, I guess it kind of, as, a, as a, like an outsider looking in, it kind of looks like agility, but just with hoops that the dogs have to run through, right? Um. 
it's like croquet with your dog without oh, the wow. food. <laughs> That's a great explanation as well. <laughs> <laughs> croquet with the dog without the call flamingo mallets. Um, I was going to say. The dog wants to go through and isn't hit through up the backside. <laughs> um, just to give that Alice in Wonderland kind of analogy. Um, there are similarities with agility, but in ways it's actually very, very different. Um, to me, agility is a bit like karate, where it's quite kind of quick and fast moving and there's sort of sharp movements, whereas Hoopers is more of your Tai Chi. It's all about the flow and flowing lines and gentle curves rather than sharp stops and turns. Okay, so there's like a course of these hoops. They're kind of like, they're not... Giant hoops. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're hoops. But then, so is it whoever gets through the course the quickest wins? So competition in the UK varies at the moment. Um, there's a few governing bodies that do competitions. Um, and depending on who you're competing with, I think the rules do vary slightly. But I think basically it's the idea is to get around the course as quick as you can. And there is an opportunity to pick up bonuses on the way by distance handling. Okay. But you're doing it a little bit differently, of course, because you, you're really kind of aiming at uh, making this fun, which I think is like a gigantic niche, right? Because so many people, they want to do dog sports, but they don't want to kind of, I don't know, they don't want that kind of like competition element where there's pressure on their dogs. Uh, there's, you know, they don't want the kind of ugly side of competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And that's kind of where canine hoop as well sort of started really so um i was competing with um the tiny dog little miss minx one of my chihuahuas and she she will compete you could argue does she enjoy competing and the answer is sometimes so if you can hear pitter patters she's just heard her name has come running in to see what's going on <laughs> if you had little pits patterns on the microphone so um yeah to me hoopers i like to think of hoopers as a fun activity that any dog can do and any handler can do with their dog working as a team that's how i would explain hoopers so yes there are hoops which have um a base two uprights and then basically a hula hoop in the top there are barrels and there are also tunnels, but Hooper's tunnels are different to your agility tunnels. They are bigger in, um, I'm going to say diameter, that might be the wrong term, but they're 80 centimetres rather than 60 centimetres, um, kind of wide, big, whatever the correct term is. And lengthwise, they're between one and three metres and they're always straight. So, compared to agility tunnels they're really different um so it's made it a lot more accessible to your giant breed dogs i mean i've got new fees that i've trained um i've seen some bernards doing it i've got a few kind of rotties um i've seen a in fact i trained a dane out in australia so it's super inclusive literally every breed from your tiny little miniature datsuns all the way up to wolfhound and that's the nice thing about it as well isn't it because i think that a lot of people worry about doing sports like agility and i guess even flyball to an extent because they're worried about the dogs like joints and all that kind of stuff especially (laughs) with the giant breeds you know the the continual impacts having an effect on them long term whereas with hoopers it's less of that isn't it it's not really jumping in the same Yeah, no, it's really low, low impact. So um, everything is basically on the floor. Now, in in America, the NADAC, which is the North American Dog Agility Council, bit of a mouthful, um, their style of hoopers is very much agility with hoops, whereas the European style, so like hoopers, Netherlands, um, Chuck, Hoopolics, um, there are a few others that I can't remember off the top of my head, but their style is very much more, it's about the flow and there aren't any kind of raised obstacles. There aren't any weaves. There aren't any, I say there aren't any contacts. Um, I know there's a touch and go mat, which the dogs kind of run over, but it's on the floor rather than it being like an A-frame. Um, that's with Chuck 
and um, I know like Hooper's Netherlands and some of the other sort of competitions on the continent use like a gate which is basically a screen that the dog has to pass on the opposite side from the handler so it's kind of a visual barrier as well um, but that's that hasn't been introduced into the UK yet okay because I know that you're kind of with the Canine Hoopers World stuff this is all kind of quite new so I guess you're <laughs> kind of coming up with and adjusting things as you go, right? It's not like one of these sports has been going for a hundred years and the rules are super strict and they don't want to change anything or if they do change anything, then it's hugely controversial. <laughs> so, no. So the reason I set up Hoop as well was um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity of going out to Australia earlier in the year. It feels like forever ago now. But I went out to Australia and took Hoopers to Perth, which was epic because Perth didn't have Hoopers. Um, there's a branch of NADAC, I believe, in Victoria in Australia, but um, WA hadn't had Hoopers before. So I kind of introduced it over there, which was super cool. And while I was sort of working out my presentation, everything, I was looking at the competition side and I was like, but I'm presenting to a lot of pet dog trainers and I myself um I would say I'm a pet dog trainer I so as much as I train hoopers I'm bringing it to my clients as an activity for them to do with their dogs rather than it being you have to train to compete so I think that's probably where hoopers world is a little bit different it's trying to introduce people to the activity and just get them involved rather than focusing on the competition side yeah that's really cool as well that with hoopers you're getting that right you know almost from the start because i think that as pet dog trainers we see it with agility all the time where you get someone say something like you know i really want to do agility but they go to the class and maybe then they don't find it a lot of fun because the classes oftentimes are aimed towards people that want to compete. So they're very serious uh, or they're done in a very strict way. Um, whereas the client and the person that just wants to have fun with their dog just wants to go around the obstacle course and have a bit of a laugh. And of course you mm -hmm. have to do it safely and all that kind of stuff, but you know, they've, they're really not worried about having the perfect contact or, uh, whatever. It's more about just having fun with their dog. So I, I think that there's definitely like a lot of desire there for people to be able to do these activities just for fun. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, with what you're saying about agility, I mean, I've helped with agility classes. And obviously, I've got lots of friends that are amazing agility handlers and trainers. And the depth that is needed for people to train agility properly and safely you do need to be quite committed you know i mean yeah sending dog over a jump over an a-frame is all well and good but if you're not doing it safely there's a potential of dogs getting injured um for me my dogs just found it way too arousing um the chihuahuas didn't like um the jumps <laughs> they decided that under was the best route to take and um i've got a staffy mix and she just found agility way 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 too much so when i found hoopers it kind of just clicked in place for the for the tiny dog and i finally had something that she could do and she could compete at so, so yeah so, it's cool so they find it less arousing then um some dogs do find it super arousing uh -huh. um but Sorry if you can hear the ice cream van going past right oh, now. Trust me, people that listen to this podcast will remember I had the exact same thing <laughs> when I was trying to record with Nancy. Oh, yeah, I can hear it. Literally, he's going to be right outside. At least I'm just glad that you admitted to it so they don't think it's me. <laughs> no, it's definitely me. It's my ice cream van. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so arousal with um, hoopers. Yes, dogs do get aroused during hoopers. Um, I'm not going to say no, they don't, because I've seen some dogs get very, very close mm -hmm. to um, even redirecting towards their handlers, to be honest. So okay. I'm not going to say that dogs don't get aroused doing it, but from the physicality of what is required from the dog, it is a lot lower impact on your joints. It's um, I've got quite a few dogs that come to classes that have done agility and have had to retire due to injury. Um, 
I've got one dog that comes across that's got a really um, a really sort of bad back problem, and the vet signed her off to do gentle activity and she's loving the hoopers and it's really sort of strengthening um her muscles and her core strength and stuff but um we've also got a few tripods that do it which is pretty cool um because there's not many dog sports that you see the tripods doing so yeah yeah um I had to think for a second then when you said tripods i was thinking of camera equipment <laughs> yeah sorry they only have three feet <laughs> on the arousal note as well I, I guess that a lot of that depends on firstly how you train the activity right but then we should also probably say it's a right for your dog to get excited and be enjoying it and, and getting mm -hmm. aroused it's, i guess is when it starts to become it starts to manifest itself and become a different problem, like the redirecting or, yeah. you know, the inability to settle whenever, you know, whenever your um, any kind of cues for training are there, right? Yeah, of course. So one of the things I try and do in class is um, if we're doing a course, obviously the dogs are going to be running one at a time. And um, I actually have stations. So every dog has a station. And when they're waiting their turn, dog and handler goes to their station and they just chill. And we make sure we're reinforcing the dogs for calm behavior in between their goes. So we're, I'm quite mindful of reinforcing the calm stuff as well as fizzing them up to do the fun stuff. Wow, that's really cool because that kind <laughs> of, firstly, it gives to people that aren't doing the running uh opportunity to do some training right like settling mm -hmm. settle training but also it does completely combat that problem of having dogs that can't settle in that environment i know that that was a big problem with uh, a lot of agility competitors where i guess you know if you have a dog i, I know that this isn't um the competition route isn't the way that you're going with Kane and mm -hmm. Hooper's world. But if you have a dog and you, you go to one of these competitions and you know, your dog is just wired for the whole day. Yeah. I mean, firstly, that isn't going to be good for them. But secondly, I would imagine that, that would affect the dog's performance. You know, if they're just constantly uh, no ability to kind of settle and they could be there in that state for hours before they even get to the opportunity. Yeah. To yeah, do yeah. The run. yeah. Potentially. Yeah. And um, I think as well. So one thing that I, I guess I wanted with canine hoopers what well is it's kind of the introduction to hoopers for people. So if people start going to classes and love it and want to do it for competition, we're giving them the skills to do that. But if they don't want to compete, they don't feel like they have to. I wanted it to be a choice for the handlers as much as, for the dogs so the way i train hoopers is very much um i use a lot of targets we do a lot of kind of shaping side and i want it to be the dogs making the choice to go through the hoops rather than we're coercing is the wrong word but kind of making them feel like they have to do it it's about you and the dog working as a team to get around a course of obstacles rather than you telling the dog to around the course of obstacles and, and also <laughs> yeah and also you know even though you're not uh, going to be holding competitions that's not to say that there isn't progression right like i know we've spoke about this carrie about having some kind of levels and stuff and you're still figuring it out but they are yeah but it's it's not <laughs> it's not like you do uh, a class and you're doing the same thing every week right like you no. you make it more difficult and you progress the dogs along yeah so the so yeah there's lots of plans for for hoop as well this year there's going to be lots to come and um there's lots of stuff kind of happening in the fall that i don't know how much i can talk about now um <laughs> <laughs> i kind of i want to like because i'm gearing up for a massive kind of announcement but i saw some little teasers there are going to be progress levels um we are doing instructor courses so we are teaching pet dog trainers how to teach hoopers safely and so that the owners are having fun um and yeah there's there's lots coming there's lots happening but there is definitely room for progress it's not a case of you come and you're doing the same exercises each week the plan is that you come for a block of classes and at the end you have achieved something yeah so i mean you did touch on a little bit discovering hoopers but how did that happen because i know that when we met you were kind of i saw you i don't know if you were ever employed by the imdt but you were heavily involved that's the rough 
we met at Crufts. We met at Crufts, yeah. Yeah, and you still (laughs) managed to sell me on courses. (laughs) (laughs) See, so people that actually know me out there are going to find it hilarious that I lost my voice. Um, Yeah, by day three of Crufts, I was literally squeaking. And I remember attempting to chat to you, and I think I sold you a tracking course virtually through a game of charades, (laughs) which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah but what i mean what was the deal with that you were quite involved with the imdt right because so, you are a member um, yep yeah, i am a member i've just done my third reassessment um yeah i've been with the imdt many many years um and a big shout out to steve and everyone there that's involved with it because for me that started my training journey um and to be honest Hooper's world and what I'm doing now wouldn't have been possible. And I don't want to get all like gushy and sound like it's the freaking Oscars, but there are the IMDT played a massive part in shaping where I am today. And I've made some amazing connections and met some lifelong friends through that kind of group. So yeah, I used to um yeah, I used to do a lot, but obviously now there's there's other stuff. But mm-hmm. if if people are looking at starting, it's definitely a way I would recommend starting the training journey. Well, well it's always good to hear a positive story about, um, you know, starting out and, and joining one of these organizations, because I think that I get it all the time where I hear from people that are just starting out and, and want to become a dog trainer and they feel totally lost by all of the options. And yeah. you hear mixed things about each organization. And I, I really think that, that people it's kind of like almost like a relationship isn't it where you have to find the right organization for the right person Um, oh my god 100 percent, 100 percent, definitely yeah because there's different schools of full and people like to learn differently some people like different formats uh you know i want to study at home or they want to go and do something quite practical um or they want a a more hands-on mentoring you know like so many different options and i think it's a really good thing because when i was starting out and i wanted to be a professional dog trainer there really weren't that many options and it feels like even in that short period of time like the the amount of options that have come up is gigantic but the oh massively massively i think yeah i mean I don't want to say exactly how many years ago because I might feel old, but <laughs> when I was switched, because I originally worked with horses, I was a riding instructor for many, many years and then started getting into dogs and then ended up, actually I was working at a horse yard but was given the opportunity to become a dog trainer and kind of decided that I'd had enough of being trampled and kicked by silly thoroughbreds and switched over to dogs um which coincided with me moving from Watford down to Surrey so I was leaving everything behind anyway so I kind of took a massive leap and switched to dogs and set up my own business so with the horse do you find that there are uh, a lot of things that you take from the horse world or particularly with I would imagine that horses because I don't know, Carrie, what you were involved with, but like horses do a lot of like jumping and that kind of thing. Were there things that crossed over? Yeah, yeah. So I used to compete. Um, I used to do show jumping and ridiculously I used to do showing. Um, Showing requires your pony to be gleaming clean for the whole day when you have a white one with black spots and he was guaranteed to lay in something disgusting the night before. It wasn't the easiest of things to maintain, but... The, the horsey people understand the joys of an Appaloosa. Um, but for me, the m- things I have brought over would be warming up and cooling down before and after exercise. It seems to be one of those things that isn't really spoken about in the dog world. And unless people are competing, they're not really made aware that you should warm a dog up before playing with the ball chucker or then cool it down once you finish playing with the ball chucker. Um, from my point of view with the horses, especially when it came to jumping, if, you know, you wouldn't dream of getting a horse out of the stable, tacking it up and putting it straight over a fence. You would warm it up properly before you even started to jump. So I found that quite a bizarre thing that the dog world doesn't seem to warm up and cool down so much. 
Yeah, that's a great point because you're right. I mean, even with pet dogs, people will get them out of the car and then immediately go into some kind of high intense activity. Oh my like, God, it gives me palpitations. Like throwing a ball or, you know, and, and the dog has just been sat still for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. Probably more well, than yes, that. Yeah, and like, I mean, just the simple thing of like, you know, one of the walks I do, um, it takes me sort of half an hour to get there because it's it's beautiful countryside and I don't see anyone, which is lovely. I'm very antisocial when I'm walking. But I keep my guys on lead probably for the first minute, minute and a half, like two minutes of just getting them out of the car. They're all on lead. We start our walk. It's normally because that bit's fairly busy. And then once I'm kind of off-roading, then I let them off. But it's given them a chance to warm up because otherwise I know they're going to get out of the car, see a squirrel, and they're going to be gone. <laughs> yeah, and I know that, um, you know, it is nice to drive places, but that's one of the advantages of actually walking to a location, right? Like you have that gradual warm up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of my local walks I do is about a 10 minute walk down to the field and then obviously 10 minutes home. So they've warmed up. They can run around as much as they like, chase things, do whatever. We'll play ballet. And then we walk back home. And by the time we're home, we've cooled down again and they can just go and sleep. And I'm not worrying about them overexerting muscles or pulling anything. So that's something that I find doesn't really get taught in the dog world so much unless you are in competition. Yeah, in the competitions, people seem to be becoming more aware of it because I guess, firstly, you know, you have these dogs that their careers are being shortened, so to speak, because they're, you know, they haven't done the right, they haven't looked after the dog in the sense of, you know, the warm ups, the cool downs. And I, I guess when they're doing that kind of high intense activity really regularly, you know, you hear people doing like massage and physio and all this kind of stuff with their mm -hmm. dog. I don't know how much that's come into Hoopers yet or whether it's necessary so, or what's, what's the deal with that? Warming up and cooling down is something that I'm, I drum it into all the trainers. Um, it's something that I feel really passionately about. And um, we've got a little Facebook group. We've got a page. Um, and then if you go to the page, like the page, then in the group, it's a free group for people to join. But I've actually written two training units and one of them is purely warming up and cooling down exercises well this is the just we should say as well that's the canine hoopers world yes group yep. and canine page hoopers world facebook group and we are on instagram and we are on twitter well apparently. yes <laughs> it's not just the uh facebook and, and social media stuff though because you've just started your your hoopers podcast yes there is now a podcast uh, is well, it I is it the not. first hoopers podcast i think it might be I haven't seen another one. Maybe it's the first. Maybe yeah. I am <laughs> that ahead of the get. I don't know. Maybe you have the world's first Canine Hoopers podcast. That would be very cool. Yeah, and it's called Canine Hoopers World, the podcast. So it's easy to find. Because, and I think that that's going to be big because there are so many dog sports podcasts. Right. Like there are several, there are ones that are solely based on agility. There's mm -hmm. uh, things like the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy podcast. And I know they do like a more, uh, more of a range of sports. Um, but there are lots of dog sports podcasts and even agility podcasts. But yours is the only Canine Hoopers podcast. And as this sport grows, I'd imagine so would the podcast. And the podcast is going to help the sport grow. Right. And, and all of these well, talks I, you're doing. I hope so. I mean, I'm, I've been speaking to people literally worldwide, which has been mad. Um, I've been speaking to um, people over in the States. Um, I've been speaking to people in Italy, Portugal. Um, I had an email from Tasmania the other day um, asking about how to start and what to do and where to do training. So the first port call at the moment is the Facebook group, but there is a website coming very soon. <laughs> it's quite surreal really i imagine to be right at the kind of start of a sport because so many of the sports we know are so established but you know when you're going out and you're doing these workshops you're literally introducing the sport to new countries that haven't got anything in place mm -hmm. yeah and one thing that i'm 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 trying to make sure that everyone is aware that there are 
different sort of branches of hoopers in different countries. And I think because it is such a new sport, um, we need to kind of make everyone aware of it. Whereas if we're trying to hold it to just what Hoopers World's doing, I don't want to be restricting people. Like I want people in America to understand that they could go to a NADAC event and compete at Hoopers there. Or if they're in the UK, there's Chuck and Hoopolics. If they're in the Netherlands, there's actually also a group now that runs competitions on Facebook. So people can video their course and submit it for a competition, which is amazing. But my kind of focus is just dogs and people having fun together and it just building teamwork and confidence. Like there's so many benefits to Hoopers apart from competing with your dog. Yeah. And I, I imagine that there, there are a few sports like that, aren't there? You know, where there are different governing organizations, you mm -hmm. know, like, or slightly different rule sets, like uh, the, the ring sports, you know, there's a couple of different ring sports. They all have slightly different rules, but very similar overall. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of situation with hoopers where everyone's got their slightly different rules. But I imagine that you can take things, you know, if you go to any of the workshops, you, you, you put the work in and, and you learn you're going to be able to take things that you can uh, apply to whichever organization you decide to go through their kind of system and either the competitions or the levels or whatever you want to do mm -hmm. yeah very much so and the th at the moment so the the kind of the bones of hoopers is the hoops the barrels and the tunnels um now competition's quite cool because in the uk there's actually four classes so there's hoopers which is just the hoops Barrels, which is mainly barrels, the course starts and finishes on a hoop, but that's purely for timing because obviously timing a dog coming around a barrel is not very accurate. So like with agility, as they pass through the hoop and it stops and starts the timer, but barrel courses are my favourites because the dog's just flowing around the course and they're just fun. Then you have a tunnelless course, which is basically made up of tunnels and I've judged a few tunnelers courses and the collies in particular lose their shiz because there are just tunnels everywhere. Like, <laughs> So explain to us, what's the difference it. between a tunnel and a barrel? So a barrel is, um, a barrel's a barrel. How do I explain so that? So like, you know, a, like, like a, a beer barrel kind of thing? No, you know, like um, an oil drum or like okay. the blue plastic barrels that you see on farms? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, or like the pop uh, so for training at home, I use the pop-up garden waste bins. Okay. They work brilliantly. So the dog has to bubbles. run through it? Round. Around oh, the barrels. Oh, okay. They threw the hoops around the barrels or past the barrels and then through the tunnels. Okay. So barrels are used for changing directional just as a passing object. Then, as I mentioned, if there's a gate, that's a passing object. And if there's a map, that's a contact so that's kind okay. of how the uk equipment works but at home if you've got four hoops and a few barrels there's so many things you can do with just that tiny bit of kit mm -hmm. and i think that's another massive selling point of hoopers is that you don't need a shit ton of equipment yeah you don't to need to spend started. hundreds and hundreds of no, pounds not at all i mean you could get a kit for home easily for like under a hundred pounds like easily yeah that's a massive selling point yeah yeah unlike agility where if you're buying proper equipment you know contacts cost thousands okay carrie <laughs> let's say i've got my hoopers uh, home kit you know i've got the i've got a couple of hoops i've got uh, the tunnels and stuff uh, how do I start out with my dog at home? I know that, you know, get yourself onto these courses and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But if you could just kind of give us like a brief intro. So for the home stuff, um, I actually deliberately haven't included tunnels in the stuff okay. for home because the tunnels is your expensive bit of kit. Right. So a lot of people aren't going to want to spend 150 plus pounds on a tunnel Okay, but let's just do the hoops and the barrels then. Yep, so it's hoops and barrels, which, and most dogs, because the tunnels are, they're basically fat and short without wanting to <laughs> rude in any way. 
as opposed to long and thin. They're fat and short. So most dogs tend to just run through. I've only had one dog that hasn't gone through the tunnel, and that was an Irish wolfhound, and she stood over a metre at the withers. Hmm. So physically, she did not fit in that tunnel. That's the only dog in, well, over 18 months of teaching now, meeting probably over 100 different dogs Mm. that I've had that's gone, I can't do the tunnel. So So I don't feel it's needed for people to train that at home. That's why I've kind of focused on the barrels and the hoops. Okay, so how do we start off with, say, the hoops at home? So starting off with just one hoop, I basically play a little bit of a what-can-you-do kind of game, a little bit of a shaping game where if the dog goes through the hoop, we mark the behaviour and we reward it. Um, so is that with do you tend to use a clicker or do you say yes or what, what do you do? Um, I'm I'm like the this like confessions of a dog trainer now. I'm <laughs> like the worst dog trainer because I never have a clicker on me. So I tend to use a verbal marker. Yeah. If a dog is super clicker savvy and people want to use a clicker, I have absolutely no problem with that, and I don't see why you can't use a clicker. Because obviously you're going to be fading your markers later on in training anyway. So to start with, it's just a case of dog goes through the hoop, mark the behaviour, and I throw the treat on the floor. Now, the reason I reward on the floor is our reward placement. I want the dog moving away from me rather than always coming back to my hand to be rewarded. So that's how we straight away start teaching the dog that tiny bit of distance. Do you do anything in the beginning to encourage the dog through the hoop? Um, If need be, I'll kind of walk with them. You can sort of shift your body weight a bit. But for my dogs personally, because they've done a lot of kind of trick training and shaping stuff, if you put something new in front of them, they go, oh, what can we do with this? And they Uh just start throwing stuff at me. If it's someone that hasn't done any sort of sport like that, before what I would possibly do is lure it to start with, but I have a thing that I lure for five and then I stop the luring. It's yeah. just a personal thing I have. Yeah. No, that's you a good rule. You your five and then you get rid of it because otherwise yeah. people get stuck with the food or toy in their yeah. hands. So, yeah. Do you know what yeah, that so reminds me of, Carrie, which is actually a good segue because I get asked about this occasionally, is the um, push-drop stick thing. Mm-hmm. With dog trainers... A lot of dog trainers aren't aware of this. And I think that when you're starting out, it's a good uh, way of making sure you're setting your criteria properly. Because um, as you get more advanced, you don't really need this because you're experienced enough where it just kind of, you kind of have, you can see it. You just kind of get it. But um, when you're starting out and you're not sure how to set criteria, there's something we call push drop stick, which is if the dog does it successfully four or five times out of five, then you uh, make it more difficult. You push your criteria. If Mm -hmm. they do it three times out of five, then you stick to the same criteria. And if they do it one or two times out of five, then you have to make it easier and drop your criteria. And I, I found that really helpful for people that are just starting out and they're not sure how to set that criteria, right? And it's the same applies to the luring because you don't want to get stuck having uh, to rely on having food in your hand. So mm-hmm. as you said, Carrie, you know, you do it say five times with uh, a lured piece of food and then you would get rid of the food. Maybe you do the same hand motion and, and you yeah. gradually build from there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And with you with you saying about the, um, the push stick drop, method i use that a lot when i'm doing trick training stuff and i have i call them geek sheets um i think the technical term is progress sheets but i call them my geek (laughs) sheet i might have to steal that i actually make a note of what my life my last criteria was um and it means if i've for whatever reason, you know, it might be that I haven't been able to train my own dogs for a few days because, let's face it, we spend more time training everyone else's. Um, or I've just put a behavior on a shelf for a little while because we've needed to work on something else. I can look back at that sheet and go, right, we were here, so I know where to pick up from. Or mm. I go back a step, yeah. get my five successes, and then push again. So I do think that 
it is something that is very overlooked and I use it a lot in when I'm training my own dogs. I might not necessarily use it with clients so much um, mm. unless they're unless they really want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. But for yeah. my own dogs, I definitely use that method a lot. No, a I'm, lot I'm totally on board with you. You know, I, I wouldn't usually um, explain that to a client, but where I've been instructing dog trainers that are just yeah. at the start of their journey. And, you know, you can see that they're really struggling to set criteria to the point where the dog's failing a lot and maybe losing motivation. I find that a really helpful tool just for them to, start uh realizing how to set that criteria and you make a good point about um uh oh what did you say now i've lost my train of thought <laughs> lost my train of thought now oh i've lost it about shelving behaviors and going back to them yeah with the um going back to you make a good point with going back to the behaviors because um i find it really helpful sometimes when you start a training session on something you've trained previously to go back a few steps and you're almost kind of reminding the dog kind of going, yeah, yeah. Th we're doing this. And then it kind of, and the dog, goes, Oh, we're doing that. And then, you know, they, they, yeah, um, yeah, totally. but the other thing um, I will add to it as well. And I don't know if this has come from having um, Chihuahuas, but with them, I also know that we have a treat capacity and our capacity is about 60 which if you're used to training like Labradors or bigger breed dogs or dogs that are super foody, they may have more of a treat intake. Whereas I know with the Chihuahuas, if I start to, if I'm working in those blocks of five, I know how many blocks I can do before I need to stop because my dog's likely to be sick because I've put too much food in there. <laughs> yeah, that's but, interesting that you measure yeah. that as well because I've got a couple of chihuahuas or chihuahuas. chihuahuas. <laughs> I've got a couple <laughs> of them myself. And um, uh, I can see what you mean. You know, I've trained a lot of small dogs too. I mean, our little black one, Louis, I've said it on the podcast loads of times, he would eat till he dies you know we really don't yeah. have to worry about that with him but um a lot of the small dogs can really fill up on treats quickly and then you know you struggle to motivate them with food after that point so you kind of have to be a bit aware of that oh and um, my guys have been at a workshop have been known to throw up and then want to carry on training <laughs> like <laughs> yeah that sounds about right they're pretty savage when it comes to the food to be honest um, but the other thing I think that's really important for people to remember as well is if a training session really isn't going to plan and you lower the criteria and it's still not going to plan, just sack it off for the day and come back to it the next day or a couple of days later. Because I think as well as trainers, we kind of get into this mindset sometimes of this is what I'm training, this is how I'm training it and we must do it. But there are days where if the dog's really not in the mood or it's a bit hot, or they're not feeding well. You know, the dog can't tell us if they actually want to train or not. So sometimes I think just benching a behavior and then going back to it can be a really good way of kind of helping the dog. And I, I remember I was doing, um, I did a thing a little while ago where I was sort of doing training for 10 treats. So every day I trained a behavior, literally 10 treats, and that was it, we would stop. Um, and one day I was training um, Chica, my eldest chihuahua, and she went into full princess mode and just wasn't up for training. I think we tried five reps and she just wasn't really listening. She just wasn't feeling it. So I just sacked it off and just stopped the training session, um, which was possibly negative to her because the good stuff stopped, but she wasn't she wasn't playing the game she wasn't offering behavior she was just being dramatic as only a chihuahua can be well th that's but the next sorry the next day i went back to that behavior and i had one of the best training sessions i've ever had with her hmm. <laughs> that 10 treat rule as well is really good for people because um, mm -hmm. You know, recently I read a book uh, by a guy called Stephen Guys. He wrote this book called Mini Habits. And the, basically what he says in that book is he applies a lot of these things that we use to train our dogs, these kind of principles of behaviorism to people, right? And mm -hmm. the way that we can build habits for ourselves is to make them small and do them every day. And instead of saying you're going to train your dog for an hour every day, 
really breaking it down to say 10 treats or even one yeah. if, if you struggle that much just you know yeah. ask your dog to do one thing for you know really break it down and then do that every day and you start to build a habit of training your dogs every single day which is really helpful because like you said carrie when you're a professional dog trainer it's really hard because you know you spend hours and hours and hours training other people's dogs you get home and you're absolutely knackered mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely so and um- I I use that take 10 treats with pretty much all of my clients. It's something we do in class quite a lot as well. So I'm like, guys, grab your 10 treats. We're going to do this behavior. When you finish your 10 treats, just take the dogs off for a sniff. I also use that with clients as well when you're trying to get them to into a habit. Because I remember I did this one case uh, ages ago and it was with this Doberman and this Doberman wasn't being walked at all. And it was a, a dog that was really had a lot of issues with it, just excitement because it just mm-hmm. didn't have any outlet at all. And I said to them, you know, you have to start walking this dog. Actually, we actually had a really good first session because we were just training in the garden. And then on a second session, I said, look, you have to start walking this dog an hour, <laughs> hour a day at least because it's just completely pent up energy and they just thought i was asking them to you know the most unrealistic thing in the world you know and and i I lost those clients because i I just completely overwhelmed them because to Mm -hmm. me asking them to walk an hour a day was like not a big ask but for them that was like asking them to climb Everest. Like it was just like, no, we're not doing that. Um, yeah. And because in, if you'd started with 10 minutes, they might have got on board. Of it. Yes, exactly. So now if I encounter something like that, I try to get them into the habit just by really breaking it down. Like, Hey, can you just take him outside for five minutes or, or whatever it is? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then we're built from there. Um, yeah. So that's a really good little coaching tip as well. But I think also as well, from the point of view of, how people train i find when a behavior is going well people keep training and keep training and keep training and eventually the dog's going to get it wrong and then they go oh and they stop whereas if they did 10 treats and then just stopped the dog's going to be like oh good stuff happened yeah we've only done 10 reps of it but that's enough for the dog's brain to process the information of what they've been learning in that session Uh and like if i do especially with like puppy consults and stuff everyone in the family will have to do 10 treats of one of the foundation exercises a day so dad would do 10 name reflex mum would do 10 eye contact one of the kids would do 10 i don't know hand touches and then the other kid might do, I don't know, 10 mm-hmm. on your beds or a down or whatever the behavior is. But by getting every family member to just do those 10, it also means that the dog's not being overwhelmed with training. Yeah, you're building a really nice training habit in the people as well. And you make a great point about, you know, once you start, it can be hard to stop. And actually, mm-hmm. uh, going I've back to going back to that mini habits book, it actually that is very deliberate. So if you set yourself a small goal, there's a good chance that you're going to go and do more. So for example, if you want to exercise every day, if you say that you're going to do 10 push-ups, a lot of the time you'll end up doing more of that because you've started, which is great. But as you said, Carrie, you have to be careful because you don't want to take it to that point where actually it's not helpful anymore. You know, the dog's not enjoying it. You know, they've had enough. And that is the mark of a good trainer as well, knowing when to stop. Mm Mm-hmm. Stop and I think this, yeah and it's a nice way to transfer it to the clients because obviously we know more than them and rather than you know talking about the push stick drop or the rest of it just be like right guys you can do 10 treats yeah. once you've done your 10 treats just stop and it also means if you've got those clients that are worried about how much food the dog's getting dude it's 10 treats like yeah. take 10 bits of kibble it's not like it's not diamonds it's fine <laughs> yeah it can be difficult when you have clients that are a little bit hesitant to use treats. And I know that, you know, I get asked that question quite a lot about, you know, how do you deal with clients that uh, aren't keen on using food as a reward? I don't, how often does that happen to you? Because I, I don't know if I'm just lucky, but I rarely get that. You know, I, if you do have a hesitance to use food, usually it's easily got over, but maybe that's just, maybe that's just me and I'm lucky. So from kind of general training clients, um, 
I think I've only had a couple. It's been where basically the vets turn around to them and gone, your dog is fat and oh, it needs to look um, which I get. And obviously it's something I'm very mindful of because when I first started doing the hoopers with um, the tiny dog, she put on nearly a kilo in wow. weight, which I was like, oh, she's doing hoopers. She's burning calories. And I wasn't being particularly mindful of the size of treat I was giving her. And so <laughs> when she think amazing, I was giving her like a whole sprat, which doesn't sound like a lot. But whole sprat to a chihuahua is actually quite a lot. So now sprats get cut into like six. Yeah, so, you know, that's really <laughs> funny when you see you go to do a session with someone, especially if they're hesitant to use food and they're just using these gigantic, like, it will be like, typically it'll be like clumps of cheese. And it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, there's your problem. You know, you can get, people don't realize you can get away with tiny treats. Like you really don't have so, to use massive treats. Are you, are you familiar with um, the Eden semi-moist food? I use that load. I can get six treats out of one piece of eden yeah i am familiar with that that's a really good treat hack actually if you want to get cheap treats then find like a a good food like that and, and you can you and just buy like a big bag and you can use it as treats especially yeah. the semi-moist stuff and the nice thing about eden is it's obviously a high meat content so dogs tend to like it especially if it's not their uh, regular food yeah and also if they're raw fed then the clients are happier to use it because they're not worrying about like messing up the dog's diet and stuff because yeah. it kind of prevents it rather than um, yeah well we're geeking out on treats now because um yeah I, there is like a <laughs> i guess when you train dogs every day you start to know what works you know yeah. and there are treats that are my go-to's if i'm doing yeah. sessions with people like yeah. um if obviously yeah, i'm talking about shop bought treats now because Obviously, you can use uh, like meats and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, if I'm just like picking up something quick, like nature's menu treats tend to be yeah, really yeah, good because yeah. Yeah, I can make them small. <laughs> yeah. Anything with a high meat content and yeah. is kind of like semi moist, like where, you know, when you squeeze it, it kind of squidges a bit instead yeah. of like just dry. You don't you don't want something really dry and biscuity generally. I mean, there's always exceptions, but um, no, no, I like. I mean, the dried liver is cool. I use the dried liver for um, for Munch or Staffy mix because she has a higher treat ratio than obviously the tiny dogs do. But um, the other thing, kind of tying that in with hoops as well, is I use quite a lot of um, like the lotus balls and toys that you can put food in because. Quite a lot of the dogs aren't into toys so much, but obviously being able to use a toy reward with Hoopers is super useful. So having kind of transition toys that have food in them is a really good way of interacting. And you don't want to be putting like sweaty cheese mm. in a lotus ball because just no. <laughs> yeah, I think that the reward you use completely... I mean, it sounds obvious, but the, the reward you use completely affects a dog's motivation to do the behavior, yeah. right? So, yeah. and it really irritates me how oftentimes when people use food, they think the only thing they can do with food is just post it in the dog's mouth. And it's like, yeah. you can add so much interactivity with food, even if you just <laughs> throw it or you can yeah. um, tuck it between your thumb and your palm and uh, have the dog chase it. There's so many things you can do with food, um, but even beyond food that's the the lovely thing about toys is you have a kind of interactivity with the dog that you is is harder to achieve with food it's not impossible but it's harder to achieve and that can yeah. that can affect how the dog does the behavior which i think is why yeah. is why people love using toys for um stuff like hoopers and agility and that kind of stuff yeah, because i mean so for me with minx like she's never really been into toys it's not kind of been something that i've really kind of instilled in her that playing with toys is a good thing i think maybe partly because we have a multi-dog household now of all of them she's the one that will guard stuff from the others the uh -huh. smallest tiniest dog in the house wants to guard everything um so things like kongs and bones have always been fine in the house but i found if we've had kind of more toy toys that's where we've had problems mm. so on walks we don't take toys out and walk stuff like that but if i'm training with her on her own she's actually really got into the little pullers now she loves the little pullers, oh, really? which is hilarious um 
but the lotus ball for her made a massive difference because it was a way of me being able to reward her at the end of a course without me needing to be there um and the other thing i my mum love her bought me a treat and train for christmas oh wow you're spoiled i was like oh i was totally spoiled (laughs) obviously that was a way for me to start teaching her distance away from me because when we're on a straight line and she's running she can outrun me now like tiny dogs quick so i wanted to be able to get that sending away but because she was quite foody it was difficult to get her moving away from me so using something like um the manners mind or the treat and train whatever you want to call it um works really well but something that i've now implemented in classes is actually we do a lot of um targets and i'm using a lot of floor targets to get the dogs to drive away and again the food is placed on the target so again it's using the food to get the dog to go to well, it makes well, we to- it makes total sense. You know, they do that in a lot of other dog sports. I know that in Gun Dog, the targets are, are really popular. But just to come back to the manners minder or the treat and train or whatever it is mm-hmm. that you're using, just for people that don't know, those are kind of like um, how would you explain that? It's almost like a little machine that you press a button it's and it a releases remote a treat. Control treat dispenser. There you it's go. Like- the best toy ever so you can put um, it at a distance and and yeah and then and it works have it at treat. quite a distance as well like it's really good for distance work um mm-hmm. and teaching the dog to go away but actually i used it in class once um i was looking after my in-laws puppy while they were away and i had to take her to a class with me so while i was teaching i actually had her set up on a mat with the um treat and train next to her and rather than me having to keep going back to her to reinforce her just settling on a mat in in literally in a hall with dogs she'd never met before um and she just laid on this mat and it actually has a timer so you can set it to automatically dispense treats on a time yeah you're making me really want one now i've never used one actually honestly like yeah my 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 splurge bit of kit is definitely that like it I mean, she's, how old was she at the time? I think she was only about five, six months old. Um, she's a poodle flat coat mix. Mm. So quite a bouncy puppy. And she was literally in my advanced class, laying on a mat, munching treats out of the treat and train while my class was doing heel work and stays and all sorts. And yeah, it was yeah. pretty cool. Just so- a bit of kit. So for people that want to get started with Hoopers, you know, you've, yes. you've captivated them, Carrie. Where do they go? <laughs> where do they go? So, Hooper, what, where to come to? So the Facebook group is where everything is happening at the moment. Um, I try my very hardest to post two training activities a week. Um, this week, due to ridiculous heat and thunderstorms, um, it hasn't happened so apologies to people in the group um but as i said there are units i think the warm-up cool down has 14 exercises in it and there is a unit on barrels and how to introduce barrels that's got eight lessons in it so this is canine canine hoopers world and they just search for that on facebook yep canine hoopers world like the page and there's a little bar that says join the group um when you join the group, if you want to join our mailing list, you can leave your email there and I will add it into the magical monkey mail thing that sends people. <laughs> monkey <stuff>. mail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And you know I, I don't do technology, Nick. You no, you're showing it now. Page. That's funny, <laughs> though. They should definitely rename it. Um, <laughs> and also, of course, your podcast which is by yep. the same name, Canine Hooper's World. Yeah, Canine Hooper's World. Um, it's available at the moment on Google Podcasts and Spotify and a few others. It's not on Apple yet. I'm waiting for that to happen. In the process. Yeah, because you're yes. early days with this. You know, you've got a few episodes up. But um, it's. I think that's a great introduction for people that are just trying to find out more. Check out the podcast as well. And yeah. It's, it's all very brand shiny new at the moment, but there's lots of exciting things to come. Um, the website's going to be lots of exciting things, including merchandise. So, yeah. 
we're, too hot we're for hoopers well with hoopers yeah too hot for hoopers t-shirts coming soon <laughs> <laughs> I actually might speak to my t-shirt lady about making one of those. That's quite funny. All right. Although, will I look really arrogant wearing that? Because people might take that the wrong place. <laughs> well, not if they've listened to this. They get the reference. That's but, um, fine. Yeah, sweet. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Carrie. No worries. Thank you so, so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And... Um, yeah, hopefully you will try some hoopers with your guys very soon. Yeah, one day for sure, soon. All right, see ya. I hope you enjoyed that episode talking to Carrie. Don't forget you can join us on the Facebook group, which is Dog Talk with Nick Benger, podcast discussion group. Just put in a request to join. And of course, before you go, don't forget to check out Michael Shikashio's new aggression course, which you can find at aggressivedog.thinkific.com that's aggressivedog.thinkific.com you can get the show notes for this episode at www.nickbenger.com slash carry hyphen and see ya